everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Professor David Dow. Welcome to our show, David. Thank you very much, David. I'm happy to be here. So... I'm interested because I've read a few of your books and uh, you talk about how when you started, you were a supporter of capital punishment and you've gone the other direction to being an opponent. What really changed your mind on it? I would say that there were two major factors uh, that changed my mind. And I should say, David, I just want to say for the sake of being clear that you're exactly right. As I say in a couple of my books, and as I frequently tell people when I talk about the death penalty, I was not against the death penalty when I started representing uh, death row inmates. I started representing death row inmates 30 years ago. And in many states, including Texas, they didn't have a right to have a lawyer in their appeals. And so I was representing inmates because I was asked to because even though I didn't know what I was doing, I figured I would do a better job than the prisoner representing himself. And so I never thought that my own clients should be executed, but just as an abstract philosophical matter, I would say that I was somewhat of a Kantian and Kant had this idea that there is an appropriate time for carrying out capital punishment. And that was really the extent I had thought about it. I just had not thought deeply about it. And then in the course of my becoming a death penalty lawyer, which happened really quite by accident, there were two factors that changed my mind. And the first is really a lawyer factor, but the second is a human being factor. And maybe even the first is to some extent a human being factor. But the first that I call the lawyer factor is that I was really expecting the people on death row to be monstrous. There's this idea in death penalty law that the people on death row are the so-called worst of the worst. I had an image in my mind and the image in my mind was that the people on death row were gonna be crazy people like Charlie Manson, who you couldn't have a linear conversation with, or somebody like Hannibal Lecter, I'm dating myself, but he's the villain in the Jodie Foster movie Silence of the Lambs. And of course, as it turns out, Charles Manson wasn't even on death row. He was in the general prison population. He died of natural causes in prison. And Hannibal Lecter is a fictional character. So the two images that I had in my mind of who I'm going to meet when I go to death row 
were number one, somebody who wasn't on death row, and number two, somebody who exists only in the movies. And what I discovered when I actually began meeting people on death row, including my own clients, but also just other people who I met on death row, was that they weren't like that at all. These were people who had committed crimes that were almost always indistinguishable from the crimes that people on the other side of the yard in the general prison population had committed. A lot of these guys, when I started representing death row inmates, I was 29 years old. And so I would look at these guys and a lot of these guys, they just reminded me of me, except that the mistakes that I made were smaller mistakes than the mistakes uh, that they made. But in terms of their ability to to contribute in terms of the love that they had for their family and their family had for them. A lot of these guys really reminded me very much uh, of myself. And so I began thinking, why are these guys here? Why, why are the people who I'm meeting, not the people who I was expecting to meet? And then you get into the guts of these cases and you realize it's because they had bad lawyers or because the prosecutors cheated or because the defense uh, or, or because, sorry, the police cheated uh, or, or just because the jury was stacked against them or because they committed their crime in a county where the district attorney was really gung-ho about the death penalty as opposed to a county where maybe the district attorney not so much. And so what I realized is that what determines whether you end up on death row is really not primarily what you did. It's primarily all of these other factors that aren't supposed to matter. And so that was the lawyer moment that the people who I was meeting on death row were not the people who I was expecting on the basis of what I had read about the death penalty to be the people that I was going to meet. And then there was the human factor. And the human factor is that if you're doing your job as a death penalty lawyer, then once you start representing somebody, you know that person probably better than you know your own partner. I tell my wife frequently that I know a lot of my clients better than I know her because my wife is from Germany and most of her family still lives in Germany. And some of them I've met, but many of them I've never met. And many of them only speak German and I barely speak any German at all. So if I met them, I wouldn't be able to have a conversation with them anyway. Whereas with my clients, we try to meet three generations of our clients' families. And we meet their moms, their dads, their grandparents, their children, their spouses or their partners, their aunts and their uncles. We meet every friend they've ever had. We met, we meet every teacher that they ever had for as long as they stayed in school. We meet prison inmates that hate that they spent time with. We meet corrections officers that feel like they know them. We meet neighbors who they grew up with. And so we, by the time we have finished representing a client and either lost ultimately in that client's case or prevailed in that client's case, we've conducted dozens, scores, sometimes north of 100 interviews to get to know these people. And so you get to know these people. You get to know these people as human beings, as people who love their family, whose families love them, who have genuine human relationships, warm relationships, who have friendships, who like to read, who like music, who like to play chess, who like to do crafts, who like to follow the news, who like to educate themselves even though uh, they're in prison. And so you really get to know these people as human beings. And so by the time you get close to an execution date, 
your client isn't a mugshot in the newspaper who's known by everybody else just for the worst thing that that person did. Your client is a human being who's got a wide range of qualities, some of which are really, really horrible, and some of which are really, really very beautiful. And so you're no longer in a position where you think that the death penalty is simply extinguishing rabid dogs. You realize that what's happening with the death penalty is that we're executing people who almost always did something absolutely horrible, but also have all of these other things about them that the legal system and the media, and indeed many times even the lawyers are completely oblivious to. So um, in one of your books, you talk about execution on a technicality, which I thought was really clever because you'll um, hear all the time, you know, oh, he got released, he got uh, his conviction overturned on a technicality, but what do you mean by uh, execution on a technicality? Thanks for that question, David. I, I would like to say that I came up with the title for that book, but it was really the wonderful uh, editors over at Beacon Press, which is who published that book. And their idea for the title was exactly as you've just suggested, which is that whenever somebody on death row, or for that matter, any prisoner, but we're talking about the death penalty day. So when somebody on death row gets either a new trial or a new sentencing trial, so you can get either an entirely new trial or just a new sentencing trial. And when that happens, the newspaper always reports that so-and-so, an inmate on death row had his conviction or his death sentence thrown out on a technicality. Okay, well, what technicality means in that context is that there was a violation of a constitutional right. So maybe it was the Fourth Amendment, maybe it was the Fifth Amendment, maybe it was the Sixth Amendment, but it was a constitutional right. So maybe there was pesky a constitutional rights, right? Little pesky constitutional rights. You know, maybe a confession was coerced. Maybe the maybe the police lied on the search warrant. Uh, maybe the prosecutor withheld evidence, and that's called that's called the technicality. I've never seen a news story, by the way where we just had all of this coverage of Fox versus Dominion, a big lawsuit about the First Amendment. I've never seen a news story where the news media referred to the First Amendment, which contains protections for freedom of speech and freedom of the press, as a technicality. But they commonly refer to constitutional rights that are designed to protect people who are facing the criminal justice system uh, as technicalities. What I discovered is that what happens far more often than people on death row getting legal relief in their appeals is that people on death row are denied relief on their legal appeals for what I think is really and truly a technicality. So for example, there was a very famous case about 20 years ago involving a death row inmate in Virginia whose lawyer missed the date for filing his appeal arguably missed the date. If he missed the date, he missed it by one day. And the reason that I say arguably is because he sent the appeal in the mail by regular mail. And so if you send something by regular mail, it's not considered file until it's received. If you send it by certified mail, it's considered filed when you send it. So he didn't send it by certified mail. If he had, it wouldn't have been late, but he didn't. And so it arrived one day late. That inmate was executed. That to me, is a technicality. 
or a lawyer is not able to raise an issue in an appeal on behalf of a death row inmate because some other lawyer neglected to do the right procedural things in order to preserve that issue so that it could be raised for later. That to me is a technicality. Those aren't constitutional rules. Those are the state procedural rules that should have some flexibility when human lives are at stake, but they don't have any flexibility. And people are executed in the United States every single year because of mistakes like that. And in the book that you're referring to, Executed on a Technicality, I talk about a lot of those cases where the people who were on death row, who were seeking legal relief, were barred from obtaining relief, not because they didn't have meritorious constitutional arguments, but because for a variety of technical reasons, the courts never even addressed those constitutional arguments. And, you know, that that brings to mind, you know, kind of the standard pushback is that, oh, these people, they, they get endless appeals and they drag the case out for years. I mean, how do you kind of respond to that? Because, you know, I think your book does a really good job of uh, kind of laying out why that's a falsehood. Yes. In the first place, they don't get endless appeals. They, they have uh, three appeals. The first appeal is called a direct appeal. The second appeal is called a state habeas appeal. And the final appeal is called a federal habeas appeal. So the first two are in state court, and then the last one is in federal court. The two in state court deal with completely different types of claims. A direct appeal deals with what is known as a record-based claim. And so what that basically means is that if you're a lawyer who's handling a direct appeal, you don't need to get out of your bed in the morning. You can just get the whole file of the case you can read through it, you can try to identify errors, and then you can file an appeal on the basis of that. That's what happens in the direct appeal. The next appeal, the state habeas appeal, focuses on what are called extra record claims. So those are claims that you can't identify from reading the actual record because they involve claims like a particular witness was not talked to or a particular forensic test wasn't done. And so you actually have to go out and do it. You have to go talk to the witness. You have to do the forensic test. And so those are extra record appeals. So why are there two different kinds of appeals in state court? Because for historical reasons, you raise different kinds of claims in those two appeals. But so far, you'll notice, David, we haven't talked about federal court. And so finally, you get an opportunity uh, to go to federal court. And that's the last appeal. Once upon a time, and when I say once upon a time, I mean basically a quarter century ago, the federal courts were where most death row inmates got relief if they were going to get relief. But as a result of a law that was passed in the mid-1990s called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, death penalty lawyers refer to it by its acronym as EDPA, um, the success rate for inmates raising claims once they get to federal court began to fall through the floor. And so once upon a time from roughly 1977 or 78 or 79 up until 1995, which was the eve of that federal law, inmates on death row got relief in their appeals. And by relief, I mean they won. So they got either a new trial or they got a new sentencing trial. Now, most of the times that inmates get new trials, they're convicted again. But nevertheless, they were getting relief. And so from that period, from roughly 1980 to 1995, that 15 year period, death row inmates would win their appeals around two thirds of the time. 
So you were asking me what I tell people who complain about endless appeals. I say, when you have death row inmates winning two thirds of the time, the system is really, really broken. And it turns out we need these appeals in order to identify and rectify those mistakes. Now, what's happened since 1995 is this new law and some colleagues of mine and I have done some research, a colleague of mine at Hofstra by the name of Professor Eric Friedman and then a colleague of mine at the University of Houston named Jeff Newberry have looked at what's happened since EDPO was passed. And you will not be surprised to know that the success rate for death row inmates has plummeted and it continues to plummet and it's now in the single digits. And so when you look at those trend lines, you can reach one or two conclusions. One conclusion is, wow, the criminal justice system has really fixed itself. And in the last 25 years, we've just we've corrected all of these problems because it used to be that we were reversing cases two thirds of the time. And now we're reversing cases about eight or nine percent of the time. So things must be great right now. That's one possible conclusion. And then the other possible conclusion is, well, no, the criminal justice system is basically about the same. The error rate is about the same. The difference is that it's much harder for legal reasons to get relief. And I have the advantage of being a middle-aged lawyer now who has lived throughout that entire period and has litigated in both of those eras. And from my perspective, the system has, yes, it's gotten a little bit better, in particular, the quality of the trial lawyers who represent inmates, at, people facing the death sentence at their trial have gotten quite a bit better. But the legal system as a whole has not gotten significantly better, certainly not better enough to explain uh, that difference in success rate. The difference in success rate, I think, is best explained by the increasing number of legal barriers to actually getting relief. So what I say to people, David, you ask me, what do I say to people? What I say to people is, turns out that we need these multiple layers of appeals in order to correct error. They're not doing as good of a job as they used to, but they used to do a good job and they still correct errors in some number of cases. And we're talking about we're talking about executing somebody and it just seems to me that even the most avid supporter of the death penalty should be wary about carrying out executions too quickly we now have so much information about mistakes that the criminal justice system makes including the mistake of sending innocent people to death row that it just boggles my mind that there are people who think that we should just hurry the whole system up and thereby increase the risk that we're going to be executing innocent people. I can tell you this, for every 11 people that are executed in the U.S., one is released from death row after that person is deemed to be innocent. Okay, so it's not quite 10 percent, but it's close to 10 percent. So you ask yourself, if you had to travel from New York to California, and they told you when you were getting on the plane, would you get on this plane if there's a one in 10 chance it's going to crash before you reach your destination and everybody on the plane is going to die? Nobody would. Everybody would take a train or a bus or drive across country or just not make the trip at all. But that's the death penalty system that we have. And people are willing to live with it because they're able to tell themselves that they are never going to face those odds. It's not an airplane to them. It's a problem that somebody else has to face, but they're never going to have to face. And we're much more willing to tolerate risk, even when it's really, really high risk, 
if we're pretty confident it's a risk we as ourselves as individuals are never going to personally face? So um, there's a lot to unpack there. And I think, um, you know, the question I want to ask and follow up is, um, you know, I, I noticed um, the citation, I think, uh, original research from 76 to 95 came from Professor Liebman. Yes. Um, and I think it was somewhere about 68% error rate. So yes. when you say error rate, um, what what are we talking about in terms of errors? Right. So we are talking about serious constitutional errors. We're talking about prosecutors getting rid of all people of color from a jury. We're talking about prosecutors withholding potentially exculpatory evidence uh, from the defense. We're talking about defense lawyers falling asleep during a trial. We're talking about prosecutors putting on knowingly false testimony. We're talking about junk science. So some so-called expert who testifies that two hairs match one another, which it turns out you can't do, or that you can look from a bite mark that it matches the teeth of a defendant, which turns out to be something else you can't do, or bad ballistics evidence where you have a ballistics examiner say this bullet came from this gun when it turns out that it didn't. Those are the types of errors that uh, that we're talking about. We're talking about biased judges, uh, a judge who might be racist, who might be an anti-Semite in a case involving a Jewish defendant. We're talking about, I had a case myself in Texas where you had a judge who was presiding in a trial where the prosecutor and she had had a sexual affair for a long time where both of them were married to somebody else. So I don't know about you, David, but if I'm representing somebody in a any kind of case, I don't really feel like I'm going to be getting a fair shake if the judge has been sleeping with the lawyer on the other side. But that sure happened uh, in Texas. And we had to file multiple, multiple appeals before we could even get a court uh, to pay attention to it. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about error. Now, here's an important fact. An important fact is that most constitutional errors, not all, but most constitutional errors require that the death row inmate, in, in addition to proving that the error happened, also prove what is known as harm, which basically means you have to prove that if the error hadn't happened, the result would probably have been different. Okay, well, how do you do that? That is an experiment that literally cannot be conducted. Possibly high standard in, in it, my it, opinion. It, it, it's an impossibly high standard. And what makes it even higher is that you would think, okay, the best way to prove that the result would have been different is to allow me, the lawyer, to go talk to all of the jurors and say to the jurors, hey, this happened. If it hadn't happened, if this witness had not testified, for example, whose testimony should not have been admitted, if this testimony had not been in front of you, would you still have convicted? convicted this guy? Would you still have sentenced this person to death? And the jurors might know, they might remember, they might say, oh gosh, no, if we hadn't heard from that witness, we would never have convicted that guy. We all believed that witness. Or no, if we hadn't heard from that witness, we would never have sentenced that person to death. It turns out that you can't even take those affidavits and put them in evidence in an appeal in a death penalty case. It's all considered out of bounds. And so the, the only way to actually prove 
that a result would have been different is to talk to the people who actually made the decision and then introduce as evidence what they say, but you're not allowed to do that. And so how do you go about proving that the result would have been different? It's really, really hard. You have to prove to a judge that there's no possible way that the jury would have arrived at this result in the absence of the error. And that's just a very high burden, but that's what you have to prove in these cases. And so when you ask me, what am I talking about? I'm talking about not just showing that there's a mistake. If all that I had to do was show a mistake, even a constitutional mistake, I'd win 90% of the time, but it's not enough to show a mistake. You have to show a mistake and that that mistake probably mattered and when it comes to showing that mistake probably mattered, you're not allowed to use as a lawyer representing a death row inmate the best evidence available, which is what the jurors might tell you. So it's a stacked game once the trial is over. What Justice Scalia used to say when he was on the court is he used to say, look, the trial is the main event here. And there are some judges who all they care about is the main event. The main event is over. Everybody goes home. They want to, don't want to watch all the other stuff that comes after the main event. And there are a lot of lawyers and a lot of judges who regard everything that comes after the trial as sideshow. It's not the main event. So we don't really have to pay attention to it anymore. And I'm going to drill into that in a second. But um, first, I want to make this point, which is basically, you know, in your book, you lay out all these egregious errors that seem like, okay, you know, th this seems like it should meet that threshold. And yet time after time, the, the courts are just like, no. And sometimes they don't even come out with a ruling. They just say no. Yes, that that doesn't happen in federal court very often. It's, it does happen in federal court sometimes, but it happens in state court all the time where the state court just says, no, you lose. Well, like, why do I lose? I, from the very from the very first day of law school, you learn, a student learns, a law student learns that one of the things about judges is they have to explain their reasoning. It's not just the answer. It's the how you get to your answer. And so that reasoning has to be scrutinized. But we don't even do that in a lot of death penalty cases. We just say you lose. And the reasoning is completely opaque. There might not even be any reasoning. You might lose just because the judges figure you were convicted, you were sentenced to death, the trial is the main event, that's it. Let's hurry up and get this whole thing uh, over with. Yeah, that happens a lot. And that, of course, David, is the point that you made earlier. I mean, that's why I called it executed on a technicality. You've got all of these very compelling legal claims in many of these cases. And what does the court say? The court says, you lose. And you say, well, why did the court say you lost? And I say, I don't know. They didn't tell me why I lost. They just said you lost. I was reading this um, book by a guy who was on death row in Alabama for, I forget, 39 years, something like that. And, um, you know, he was convicted and he basically was appointed this attorney um, and paid like $1,000 to represent this guy uh, in a capital murder case. He had never, uh, I don't even know if he was a criminal attorney. And, and he meets him for the first time. And the guy, the guy goes, I'm only getting paid $1,000 to represent you. And I eat $1,000 for breakfast. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, it's, it, it's this telling thing about the criminal justice system. So 
you know, you get all these guys um, and, and you're talking about the fact that the trial is the main event, but then you have bad attorneys. And um, also in your book, you also talk about bad appellate attorneys too. And so that's a double whammy that, that, that is almost insurmountable. Yes. I wouldn't say almost insurmountable. I, I would say that what you've just described is in fact insurmountable. And that of course also is a technicality where somebody's get convicted and sentenced to death and ultimately executed, not because of what they did, but because they had the terrible misfortune to have a bad trial lawyer and then a bad appellate lawyer. I do wanna say a couple of things, uh, David, about that because um, you've raised such an important topic, which is the the quality of the lawyering. The first thing I want to say, just to be clear, is that the quality of most lawyers, including trial lawyers and including appellate lawyers, is orders of magnitude better today than when I took my first case 25 years ago or whatever it was. Um, the training is better. Uh, the lawyers are not just dialing it in anymore. And so the quality of the lawyering is undoubtedly better. It's still awfully bad in a lot of cases. Why? A couple of reasons. One is there are some people who facing a possible death sentence, they don't want to rely on a court-appointed lawyer. They've heard all of these bad things about court-appointed lawyers. So they're going to go hire their own lawyer. And maybe the Alabama case is an example of that. I don't know. I don't know the case. But what will happen a lot of times is your family has $1,000, $2,000, $5,000. You ask your neighbor whether they know a lawyer, your neighbor knows a lawyer, they connect you with the lawyer. The lawyer says, oh yeah, I'll represent this person in this death penalty trial. My fee is $5,000 if that's all you have. They take the $5,000 and they don't know the first thing about representing somebody in a death penalty trial. You've hired that person just because you figure that hiring some private lawyer is going to be a better decision than relying on a court-appointed lawyer. And the reason you might think that is because once upon a time that might've been true, but it's definitely not true now. And now you've made it impossible for yourself to win because you have decided that you're gonna hire this incompetent person and you think they're better because they're taking your money rather than the state's money. So that definitely happens. The other thing that happens is that <clears throat> once you get into the realm of court-appointed lawyers. I said a moment ago that the quality of the trial lawyering is orders of magnitude better now than it was a generation ago, but there's still a big problem. And the big problem is still that the lawyers are constrained by the amount of money that they're going to get paid. Being, being a lawyer, even a death penalty lawyer is a job. These are people who are practicing law so that they can pay the mortgage, so that they can buy groceries, so that they can pay the electric bill. They're not doing it because they're good Samaritans who are doing it for charity. This is their, this is their job. And so when the court says, this is how much money I'm going to give you, you take that number and you're the trial lawyer and you say, okay, this is the number. How am I going to best spend this? And you're already making decisions about things that you're not going to do because you can't afford to do them. If you have a rich client, if you're some of some of the people who listen to your podcast might be old enough to remember, you know, the OJ trial from the whenever it was the mid 1990s. And OJ Simpson 
had enough money to to hire a, a dream team of lawyers. They 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 could do everything. There wasn't a single thing that they had to say, oh, we don't have the money to do this. There wasn't a single forensic test that they had to say no to. There wasn't a single interview that they said, oh, we can't conduct that because we can't afford to travel there and spend the night in hotels and talk to those people. So if you are a defendant who has enough money such that your lawyers can do every single thing that they, in their expert judgment, think is worth doing, you're going to come close to evening the playing field. You're still not going to even it because the state, they don't, have, they don't have a budget, but you're going to come close to evening it. If you're just a lawyer who's appointed in a death penalty case in Texas or Alabama or Louisiana or Mississippi, you name it, it doesn't really matter. You're not going to be able to do everything you want to do. And so even the best lawyers have to make decisions about things that they're not going to do, not because they don't want to do them, but because the state won't pay to have them do them. And that's a problem. Once you get to the appellate stage, I think the appellate lawyers are also better. But you have the same problem. I, I, I bill the federal court if I'm in federal court my time. I bill the state court if I'm in state court my time. And I don't think that there has been a single case that I've been appointed to over the last quarter century where the courts haven't just slashed the vouchers that I've submitted. So maybe they pay me 20 cents on the dollar, 25 cents on the dollar, maybe in a really good case, 60 cents on the dollar. This isn't a problem for me because the fees that we earn support my clinic. I'm a full-time faculty member. I'm not living on that money. I'm using it to support my clinic. But if you're a private lawyer, no, you're living on that money. And so if you know... One one important point, which I and I think you raised a really important point here, because, you know, um, I look at, you know, wrongful conviction cases, and I would say 90 percent of the wrongful conviction cases I've looked at are represented by private attorneys. And and one of the biggest problems, aside from the competence level, which, which is real, but, you know, one thing people don't take into mind is that you can like cut a deal for you know a guy even to represent you for free maybe but that doesn't mean that the investigators are free and and so um you know when you go through at least in california public defender's office they they have access to their own investigators and and, and that's not an issue um but you know if you have to pay out uh, out of pocket for investigators that's where it kills you. Absolutely. Um, and, and expert witnesses, too. Absolutely. Investigators, expert witnesses, uh, forensic testing in labs. You know, it's, it, 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 it doesn't cost nearly as much in 2023 as it did in, in 2010 to, to have an independent lab do a DNA test, to extract DNA and then to, uh, and then to construct a genetic profile. But it still costs. And if there's a whole lot of biological material, we have a case in my office right now where there are something like 15 or 18 different pieces of evidence that we want the lab to try to extract DNA from and then construct a profile. And the county's paying for it. But in a case where the county's not paying for it, where the defense team has to pay for it, you're not going to test it all. It's too expensive. You're going to say, all right, let's test maybe two or three pieces of this evidence and hope that we pick the right ones. 
Um, and so, yes, you're exactly right. Even even if the lawyer is willing to donate her his time, you have all of these other people who you're still going to have to pay. And actually, it turns out that the fees that you actually pay the trial lawyer are just a fraction of the total cost mm-hmm. of, of, a, of a death penalty trial. The total cost of the death penalty trial includes all of that other stuff. Um, and unless you're a really wealthy defendant, and there aren't wealthy defendants who are facing the death penalty, unless you're a really wealthy defendant, you're just not going to get it done. So um, in closing, I want to ask you like the million dollar question that, that you know everybody has an opinion on this. Have we executed innocent people, in your opinion? Of course. Of course we have. I, I mean, it, it's just fantasy to think that you have. Here's what you have to believe to think that we haven't. What you have to believe is that every single exonerated person who's walked off of death row is all there is, that, that we're catching every single one of them at the last possible moment. It's not just the ninth hour, the 10th hour, the 11th hour, it's the 11th hour and the 59th minute. And you have to believe that all of those cases we've miraculously caught at that last possible second. And I, 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 I myself, maybe you're a more religious person than I am, David, I don't believe in miracles. And so because I don't believe in miracles, I don't believe that we've caught every single one of those things miraculously at the last possible second. And I just look at the data and I look at all the data and I say, this is how many innocent people we've spent to, sent, sent to death row. And why would I have any reason to think that this is all there is? It's like that old joke when you walk into your apartment in Manhattan and you see a rat scurrying across the floor you know that there's another hundred rats behind the wall. And I don't think that there's any reason to believe that the number of innocent people on death row is any different. We see some, and the fact that we see some implies that there are a whole lot um, behind, not the wall, behind the jail cells. And there's actually, I'm glad you brought that up because there's a law professor at Michigan by the name of Sam Gross and Sam and his team did a whole lot of research in, and what they did was they took all of the cases of known exoneration and they identified the characteristics that led to exonerations in those cases. And then they extrapolated that to everybody else on death row. And they concluded, I don't remember the number exactly, it's been a while since I read the study, but they concluded that it's something like 8%. Um, the low end is 5%, the high end is, is around 9%. They said a safe estimate is about 8% of the people on death row are innocent. They didn't commit the crime that they were sent there for. So you just have to believe that we are miraculously identifying every one of those at the last possible second. And I just think that that's a fantasy. So yes, we've executed innocent people. Could I tell you who they are? No, I have some, I have some, some, some intuitions, including one of my own clients, by the way, who I believe was innocent. Um, but the, the, the problem that faces many death penalty lawyers for years and years and years, there were people in the death penalty community who were really very gung-ho about relitigating all of these old cases in order to get DNA in one case that would finally prove that we had executed somebody with who was innocent and using DNA because there are some people who all they're ever going to believe um, is DNA. 
And my reaction was twofold. Uh, my first reaction was, I don't have time to do that. I've got 16 clients on my docket right now. And every minute that I spent looking at some case from 20 years ago is a minute that I'm not working on one of these active cases. And I just can't justify that. And I said, and second of all, even if I made the other decision and I decided, you know what, I'm just going to ignore all my clients. I'm going to spend 24 hours a day looking at all these old cases. I'm going to find one where DNA proves that we executed somebody who's innocent. I said, it won't matter. It'll be, it'll be a news story for, you know, two, three, four days. And then people will say, okay, well, that was the only one, you know, um, and we'll, and we'll move on. So, you know, it's, it's not like, it's not like we've stopped putting people in prison, even though we know that there have been hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of people who were sent to prison, even though, you know, they were innocent. We still lock people up. And I think we'll still send people to death row and we'll still execute people, even after we have the case where DNA proves that somebody was innocent. We'll wring our hands. We'll say, isn't that terrible? How much money can we give the family? We made such a horrible mistake. And then we'll turn the page and we'll move on and we'll have another death penalty trial the next day. Are you hopeful that there will come a time when in fact, we don't have a death penalty. I mean, I know the number of executions has gone way down. And every time I think, oh, it's on its death row, then, you know, you get 13 executions by the, the federal government a few years ago. Yeah. So, um, you know, but it does seem like <laughs> we're doing it less and less. It does. It does. It's funny that it's funny that that you describe your own sort of sense of optimism and then and then the crash, because about 15 years ago, I just remember very distinctly telling telling my wife, I said, oh, my gosh, you know, we're, we're, we're done with the death penalty, um, but I'm not ready to retire yet. So I'm going to need to find something else to do. I said, you know what I think I'm going to do? I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to work on on equal rights for the LGBTQ community <laughs> since 15 years ago. And now here we are today. And same-sex marriage is constitutional in the United States, and we still have we still have the death penalty. So that just tells you everything that you need to know about my ability to prognosticate. So just take what I'm about to say with a grain of sand or salt. Um, I, I think it's going to be a really long time before we actually get rid of death penalty statutes from the authorized punishments in all of the states. That said. I think that in my lifetime, we won't have executions anymore. Every other state will stop executing. There are 24 states that have the death penalty, but that's really misleading because there are only about six or seven that are actually carrying out executions. Right. And they're going to stop. They're going to all stop. And then the only state that's going to be left is Texas. And Texas is going to still be carrying out executions. And then the people in Austin are going to like look around and they're going to say, you know what? All these other states have stopped executing people. Their homicide rates haven't gone up and they've saved a whole lot of money by not having a death penalty because death penalty trials cost two, three, four, five million dollars more than a non-death penalty trial. You have me on your podcast again, we'll talk about why that's true. But for now, your listeners will just have to believe me that that is true. And so the lawmakers are going to say, we can either continue to have the death penalty or we could lower taxes or we could continue to have the death penalty and we can buy a laptop for a tablet or whatever for every kid in K through 12. And it's going to be for fiscal reasons that it finally goes away in Texas. It'll still be a punishment that is in the statute books, but I think that we'll stop using it. And so as a practical matter, we won't have the death penalty. And I am very confident 
that that will happen in my lifetime. Will it happen next year, the year after? No, probably not. But will it happen within the next 10 years? I think yes. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. So if people want to find out more about some of the work that you do, where can they go? Uh, they can go to one or two places. They can go to my website, which is davidrdow.com and navigate their way to my death penalty clinic, or they can just go straight to the University of Houston Law Center where I teach. And there's a page that talks about all of the different clinics that the law center has. And one of them is the death penalty clinic, which I've been running now for, geez, 23 years. All right. Well, thanks, David, for coming on our show. And uh, it really can't get enough of uh, the death penalty discussion, unfortunately. Yes. Well, thank you, David, for having me on the show. I really enjoyed uh, chatting. And maybe if I manage to crank out another book, you can have me on again and we can talk about it. All right. We've been talking with David Dow uh, about the death penalty. This is Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.